Hey guys, this is Erin from Roadrun Blonde, and I wanted to tell you about a new feature on ACAST that supports its artists. It's the supporter feature. Listeners to Roadrun Blonde can now donate and support the podcast. However, there's no subscription or commitment. You can just give whenever or whatever you'd like. It's completely up to you. Just find the support the show link in the show description on any episode. You can use Apple Pay or Google Pay, and it takes less than 30 seconds. You can donate anonymously, or you can add a message that I can see. As a podcaster, everything comes directly out of my pocket. I don't get paid to podcast. It's just my passion. So anything is appreciated to keep the show going. Thank you so much, guys. And now on to the show. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Red Rum Blonde. This is a true crime podcast. Each week, I'll explore a case, the victims, the facts, and the mystery surrounding it. Some are solved, some remain unsolved. I'm your host, Erin Fleming. When we think about serial killers, there's usually something going on in their head about who they kill and why. There's normally some similarities between the people that they target. I mean, take Ted Bundy and David Berkowitz. Both were drawn to women with long, dark hair that was parted in the middle. John Wayne Gacy, Jeffrey Dahmer, Dean Coral, and many others preyed on young men. And then there's the motives. There are stories starting to circulate about what fueled Joseph D'Angelo or the Golden State Killer's rage. Like Bundy, he seems very angry at a previous breakup, or to him, the one that got away. But he also might have witnessed the rape of his younger sister at a very early age. Something seems to have influenced these men and driven them. But what if you had a serial killer without any particular motive or type of person that they kill? That's the case with this week's subject. He killed both men and women of various ages, and there wasn't any particular way that he killed. I think with true crime, we all try to figure out what makes the person the monster that they become. And it also makes it a lot more difficult for police to find a pattern and to capture this person. This week, I'll discuss the Casanova killer, Paul John Knowles, 
1974, Knowles went on a killing spree that spanned several states, and he is thought to have been responsible for 20 deaths, but he claimed that toll was higher, possibly 35. Before I go into what transpired in 1974, I'm going to first go into a bit of his early life. Paul John Knowles was born in Orlando, Florida on April 17th of 1946, but not much was written about his early life. We pretty much only know that his father gave him up at a very early age and he was then placed in foster homes. And I couldn't find out any information about his mother or whether or not he had any siblings. At the age of seven, he stole a bicycle getting caught and sent to a reformatory. He continued his life a crime, and of May of 1968, he was arrested for attempted burglary, and he served three years in a Florida prison. Obviously, he had the odds stacked against him without any strong family ties. Granted, not all kids who had a sad early life like this take to crime, but without any positive influence, Knowles did. Who knows what kind of life he would have led had he had a good family growing up. Knowles was released in 1971, but it wasn't long before he was incarcerated again. After escaping from a prison war camp, he was captured three weeks later, tacking on another three years for that escape and a resisting arrest. But the one thing he did have working for him was his good looks. Paul John Knowles was a tall, lanky redhead, and he had no trouble with the ladies, hence getting dubbed the Casanova Killer. In fact, while still in prison, he began a correspondence with a cocktail waitress in San Francisco by the name of Angela Kovic. I'm not sure how they met, but both seemed very swept up in the romance. She flew all the way to Florida to see him, and at that time he proposed, and she accepted. Kovic hired a criminal attorney to represent her fiancé, gaining him a very early release. In May of 1974, Knowles headed out to California to see his future bride. However, when the two met up, it did not go well at all. Some accounts say that she consulted a psychic, who told her that she would soon encounter a dangerous new man in her life. So whether it was this warning from the psychic or she got bad vibes from him, Kovic ended that relationship. She was reported as saying he projected an aura of fear. But Knowles was very despondent over the demise of the relationship. And by his account, he claimed to have murdered three people that very night. However, these murders are unsubstantiated. He returned to his home state of Florida, living in Jacksonville. And there he was arrested for stabbing a bartender during a fight. Once again, he managed to escape. This time by picking a lock on his cell on July 26th of 1974. And that night of his escape, he committed the first murder that can actually be traced back to him. He broke into the home of 65-year-old retired school teacher Alice Curtis. And after he bound and ganged her, he ransacked her home. Alice Curtis died after choking the death on her dentures. It's unclear whether Knowles was there when she died. He stole her Dodge Dart and he headed for the road but he knew he was wanted by police, so he would soon have to ditch the car. 
while he was in the act of abandoning the car on the street. He recognized two young girls who were family acquaintances. They were 11-year-old Lillian and 7-year-old Milet Anderson. Their mother left them home alone so that she could go tend to a sick relative. And she wasn't worried because their father was due to be home from work at any moment. But unfortunately, on this day, he was an hour late getting home. It was a fatal run-in for the little girls. Knowles was very paranoid of being recognized by them, so he knew he was going to have to dispose of them. He kidnapped them and proceeded to strangle each, then abandoned their bodies in a nearby swamp. Both little girls had medical conditions. Milet had asthma and a weak heart, which required medication if she got overexcited. And Lillian had a thyroid condition, which required daily medication. And sadly, their bodies were never recovered. Other young girls had disappeared in Jacksonville around this time, but it seems their disappearance was not linked to the others. Again, on the run, this time, he picked up Hitchhiker. 13-year-old Ima Jean Saunders had run away from her home in Beaumont, Texas, and ended up back in Georgia. Her parents had divorced, and her mother and stepfather moved to Georgia. But Ima stayed behind with her father in Beaumont. But she was very unhappy there with her father. So she got on a bus, and she headed back to Georgia to go live with her mother. Her little sister was four at the time, and her last memory is seeing Ima walk out the door to meet friends. She recalls Ima telling her to lock the door, and she never saw her again. On August 1, 1974, Ima had the unfortunate luck to encounter Knowles. Her body wasn't even identified until December of 2011, and for years her remains were unidentified. This was until DNA samples were submitted by her mother and her sister and they matched to hers. She had been sexually assaulted, strangled, and left for dead in the woods. And for years her family had just thought she'd run away. Killing Ima, the madness didn't stop there. He was on a spree. The day after killing Anderson's sisters and Imogene Saunders, he met 49-year-old Marjorie Howie in Atlantic Beach, Florida. He either forced his way into her apartment or she unwittingly let him inside. There he strangled her with a pair of her own nylon stockings. He also stole her rare color, color television set, which he gave to a former girlfriend in Macon, Georgia. And by the end of August, he'd made his way all the way to Masella, Georgia. There he forced his way into the home of Kathy Sue Pierce and her three-year-old son. He cut the phone cord and he strangled her with it, all in front of her baby. And luckily, for whatever reason, Knowles left the child unharmed. On September 3rd, he met 32-year-old William Bates. And Bates was an account executive at the Ohio Power Company. And he was having some drinks, according to the bartender. After a while, the two were seen leaving together. When he didn't return home, his wife reported him missing. Also missing was his car. In October, his nude body was found dumped in the woods. He had been strangled. Police located the Dodge Dart that belonged to Alice Curtis. So Bates' car was now being driven by Knowles, with really no one to stop him. He was traveling through different states in stolen cars. 
and sometimes the people he killed weren't discovered right away. So these crimes weren't being linked. It seemed like he was unstoppable. He made his way to a campground in Eli, Nevada, and there he bound and shot 64-year-old Emmett and his wife Lois Johnson. At that time, police just thought that it was a random killing. And like some of his other killings, this crime wasn't linked to Knowles until he admitted doing it. He stole their credit cards and used them to pay for his expenses. On September 21st, while going through Texas, Knowles spotted a stranded motorcyclist by the side of the road. It was 42-year-old Charlene Hicks. Hicks thought he was pulling over to provide assistance to her, but she soon became his next killing. Hicks was abducted and raped and then strangled with her own pantyhose. Knowles drug her body through a barbed wire fence, and she wasn't discovered until four days later, and by then he was long gone. His next stop was in Birmingham, Alabama. There he met Beautician Ann Dawson. And this is another case where authorities aren't sure whether she was kidnapped or she actually willingly stayed with Knowles. Her body was never recovered. He said he threw it into the Mississippi River. By October of 1974, he made it all the way up to Connecticut. There, he broke into the home of Karen Wine and her 16-year-old daughter, Dawn. He bound and raped both of them. and They were each strangled with a nylon stocking. And sadly, they were discovered by Wine's oldest daughter, Cheryl. In the same month of October, he broke into the home of 53-year-old Doris Hosey in Virginia, shooting her to death with her husband's rifle. He wiped away his fingerprints and he placed the gun beside her. But nothing appeared to be stolen from the home, so the motive was unclear in this case. After killing Hosey, he drove in Bates' car to Key West, Florida. He picked up two hitchhikers whom he planned to kill. But this plan went awry when he was pulled over by a policeman for a traffic violation. Perhaps he was spooked by this encounter because he dropped the two off safely in Miami, Florida. He contacted his lawyer, who suggested that he turn himself in. His lawyer arranged a meeting, and at that time, Knowles handed over a taped confession. And it's only because of this tape that he can be connected to many of his crimes since the bodies weren't recovered. However, he ignored his lawyer's advice to surrender, and he left town before the police could apprehend him. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. 
There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. On November 6th, he met 45-year-old Carswell Carr in Milledgeville, Georgia. The two became fast friends, and Carr graciously invited Knowles to spend the night at his house. After having a few drinks, he stabbed Carr. And sadly, he wasn't the only family member at home. Also at home was his 15-year-old daughter, Mandy, and she was strangled. Reports say Knowles tried to have sex with her corpse. Mrs. Carr came home from her late-night shift as a night nurse, and there she found her husband stabbed 27 times with a pair of scissors. When she ran to her daughter's bedroom, she found her face down on her bed. She'd been sexually assaulted, then strangled with a pair of stockings, which had been pushed down her throat. Knowles made away with Carr's credit cards, briefcase, and clothing. On November 8th, he arrived in Atlanta, Georgia. British Fleet Street journalist Sandy Fox was nursing some drinks at a Holiday Inn bar. The 45-year-old immediately noticed, quote, dreamboat Knowles with his gaunt good looks. She was really smitten with his looks. She said he looked like a cross between Robert Redford and Ryan O'Neill. Now remember, this was the 70s, and those were two of the hottest actors at that time. So it would be like today's equivalent of saying someone looks like Brad Pitt and Channing Tatum. Fox and Knowles went on a booze-filled road trip, and booze being the key word. Apparently, Knowles couldn't perform sexually their first night together, and he had issues the days that followed. And Fox had no idea who he really was since he told her his name was Daryl Golden. But she was the one person he seemed to confide in. He admitted that he feared he wouldn't live long. Identifying with the main character in the best-selling 70s book, Jonathan Livingston Seagull. The two parted ways on November 10th. Later, Fox realized how lucky she was to get away from him alive. A few years after that, she penned a book titled Killing Time about her experience with the killer. The next day, Knowles picked up a friend of Fox named Susan McKenzie, and at gunpoint, he demanded that she have sex with him. McKenzie was able to escape, and she ran to the police. But when they tried to stop him, he pulled out a sawed-off shotgun, and he made his escape. Around this time, he suspected of the murder of hitchhiker Edward Hilliard and Debbie Griffin, Hilliard's body was found in the woods, but Debbie Griffin's body was never found. It was a few days later that he forced his way into the home of invalid Beverly Maybe and her sister. He stole their car, taking the sister with him. But thankfully, he dropped her off in Fort Pierce, Florida without harming her. But luck was about to run out for Paul John Knowles. On November 17th, Florida Highway Patrol Officer Charles Eugene Campbell recognized the stolen Ford Grand Torino that he was driving. This was near Perry, Florida, just south of Macon, Georgia. So he pulled the car over, attempting to make an arrest. But Knowles fought with the officer, trying to get the gun away from him. And he was successful, taking the officer hostage in his own patrol car. But he knew he'd have to get rid of it soon. Using the siren, he pulled over another motorist named James Meyer and commandeered his vehicle. 
but now he had two hostages that he had to get rid of. He led both men into the woods by gun. This is in Pulaski, Georgia. There he handcuffed them to a tree, and he shot them both in the head at close range, execution style. While driving through Henry County, he attempted to drive through a roadblock at the intersection of Highway 42 and Hudson Bridge Road, but he lost control of the car. He then ran on foot from the car, injured and bleeding. He was pursued by officers from several different agencies, dogs, and helicopters. After running for hours, he had the bad luck of ending up in the backyard of a Vietnam vet who had just returned home from a hunting trip. This man cornered him with a gun, and he held him until police could make the arrest. Had it not been for this man, Knowles might have eluded capture. There are newspaper pictures of a very heavily bandaged Knowles being taken into custody. And while in custody, the press clamored for the story and news of this handsome killer, and he just loved the attention. He thought it would make him famous, and in a way it did. After learning of the recorded tape confession, many its contents. As we've learned from his antics so far, Knowles wasn't one to go down without a fight. On December 18th, he was being escorted by car to Henry County, Georgia. And that was where he admitted to dumping the gun belonging to Florida State Trooper Charles Eugene Campbell and killing him with it. Sheriff Earl Lee and Georgia Bureau of Investigation Agent Ronnie Angel were escorting him back to that site. Knowles picked the lock on his handcuffs with a paperclip hidden in his socks. He grabbed Lee's handgun, discharging it through the holster. And while he struggled for the gun and control of the car with Lee, Angel was able to fire three shots into his chest, killing Knowles instantly. Some speculated that there was, wasn't an attempt at escape and that the men executed Knowles saved the trouble of a trial and execution. Had he made it to trial, I don't doubt that he would have gotten fan mail and love letters like serial killers Ted Bundy and Richard Ramirez. I mean, that's how he met Angela Kovic and almost got married. The trial would have been a media sensation. And had he not been killed, we might have learned more about possible victims. In his taped confession, he claimed to have killed up to 35 people, but sadly did not go into detail about who they might have been. So what motivated this killer? I theorize that he might have had a mental condition similar to killer Richard Chase. And these killings were all over the place, and he used a variety of ways to dispose of the people he killed. It's apparent that there was no careful planning involved. He was briefly evaluated by a doctor, but there doesn't seem to be a clinical diagnosis. If I had to guess, I'd say he might be schizophrenic. You also have to consider his background. I mean, very little is known about his family or childhood. And from what I've heard about foster homes and reformatories, there's no doubt that he was probably abused in some way. It makes me think of the series I've been watching about serial killer Edward Edwards called It Was Him. The show mentions that Edwards wrote an autobiography in which he talked about the abuse he suffered at an orphanage. It was severely emotional and physical, and when young children are abused, it can mold them into abusers themselves. Such was the case with Edwards, and it's talked about extensively on the show. 
These are such formative years for a child that abuse during this time is very detrimental. Perhaps he was abused during his younger years. It's very likely. So it's really hard to determine what drove Knowles to kill. It seems like anyone who encountered him became a potential victim. But oddly, there are many that he let get away unharmed. There was the journalist Sandy Fox. And was it because that they had somewhat of a romance? There was also the three-year-old boy whose mother was murdered in front of him. Why did Knowles not kill the child? Maybe he felt some kind of connection to him. But he had no qualms about killing children because he so callously murdered the Anderson sisters. It's really hard to get inside of his head. Then there was the sister of Beverly, maybe, who he let go without harm in Florida, and those hitchhikers. I mean, why didn't he kill any of them? Was there some kind of sympathy there? It's very baffling. He also seemed to not have a preference for how he killed. Many were strangled, but he stabbed and shot, too. It's a shame that he was killed because I think he would have talked a lot about his crimes because he seemed to have enjoyed getting the attention. And all of the photos of him in police custody, he's smiling. Because of his good looks, he probably got used to all the attention. Guys like that seem to thrive on it. Had he lived, we might have learned more about his background and possibly why he committed this crime spree. So that was the case of Paul John Knowles. It was one I've wanted to cover since I started the podcast, but kind of a frustrating one because even with all of the different people that he killed, it was very hard to find any information about them. I always like to learn about the people who were killed. I think it's very important to learn their story as well as the killers. But sadly, I could not get much information on anyone. And we'll never truly know the actual death toll attributed to him. So there's no way to transition from talking about murder to something that might be exciting, so I'll just announce that Red Run Blonde now has merch. I got artist Miguel Walrave to do my logo. Please go check out his work. It's M-I-C-H-I-E-L-W-A-L-R-A-V-E dot com. He just started a new company too called MeltdownSkates.com, and he's a very amazing artist. And I was so fortunate to get it such a cool logo done by him. So you can now go to tpublic.com and find my merch. That's T-E-E-P-U-B-L-I-C.com. I loved it so much that I bought a t-shirt and a mug. Even if you don't like the podcast, that logo is cool as hell. I posted a link on the Red Run Blonde Facebook page. Also, go check me out on Twitter and Instagram. Thank you for all the great reviews lately. I get so excited with anyone reaching out. And I'm also thrilled with all the suggestions for possible future episodes. As usual, thanks to my fellow podcasters for all your support. Thanks a lot, guys. I really appreciate when anyone listens. So thanks for tuning in, and I'll catch you next week. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs> 